so today uh, what we're doing is that uh, we are continuing, continuing with our sermon series that we are calling A Living Liturgy. And if this is uh, one of your first times with us, what we're doing this, this uh, really the first two months of this year is that we are actually just walking through our liturgy. The reality is that at any point that you come to Ironworks, you're going to notice that we have a highly structured worship service. That, in fact, our prayers are scripted where there's this responsiveness to tone to our, our, our worship. And so it's common for, to, it's very common to hear the question, why is, what, what is this liturgy? Why do you worship this way? And so we're spending the, the first few weeks of this year to answer this question. Why do we worship the way we, that we do? And the reality is that the biblical principle is that we become who we worship. That w- as we worship God, we become like him. And so how we worship matters. And so like the, the entire title of this, this sermon series is Living Liturgy, A New People. It's this idea that how we worship... Sh- like as we are worshiping God, we are being shaped, we are being formed, we're being made into the new people of God. And so uh, we're really moving sequentially through our, our liturgy, where one week we looked at the call to worship, one, another week we looked at uh, the confession, another week we looked at um, the offering. And last week, I was not here as I was speaking to a bunch of middle schoolers, and, but Pastor Darren Fisnell was preaching on uh, how we are a people of prayer. And so actually right there, there was a skip right there where we jumped right over the, the passing of the peace. And so today, we're taking up both the, the words of assurance. We're taking up the passing of the peace. We're taking up really these two things together and, and looking at the implications of what it means for us to be forgiven. We're looking at the implications of what it means for us to be a people of peace. And so uh, the title today in your uh, worship guide says, A People of Peace. And um, up here says, a, a Just People. And these things all go together, as we'll see. But our, we're looking at Titus 3 today. Titus 3, uh, verses uh, 4 through 9. Titus 3, verses 4 through 9. And I'll be reading out of the ESV. You can follow along in the, your worship guide. You can follow along on the words projected on the screen. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. Beginning with verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we ask for your blessing now as we look to your word. May your spirit and word be at work in our life. And so, Father, be with us now as we, are, as we know our hearts are distracted and hurried, uh, as perhaps our minds are full of uh, doubt and questions and despair. So, Lord, we ask that you would comfort us uh, with yourself as we look to your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
So a few weeks ago, I shared um, a, a report with you. I shared some research with you. And this uh, research was conducted about 10 years ago by the Barna organization. And they were asking the question, why are people rejecting the Christian faith? Why are people rejecting the Christian faith? And so these researchers went into this 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 question, expecting people to provide some evidential reasons, like science, perhaps history, uh, like archaeology, all sorts of different things. They were expecting um, some evidential reasons, but they were shocked to learn that it wasn't that people were rejecting the gospel, not for evidential reasons, but for moral reasons. That people were saying that we are not Christians. That we are not Christians, We're, we don't believe in Jesus because the church is full of hypocrites. And that was one, quite, one thing that we thought about a few weeks ago. But on the other hand, another moral reason that people give for their rejection of the gospel is that the church is responsible for so much injustice. That the church is responsible for so much injustice. And the reality, the reality is that's true. The church is responsible for so much injustice in the world. The church has had a, a role in injustice. Christians have, have been unjust. And let me just give two examples uh, to this because the reality is the American church deals with the baggage of un injustice over and over and over again. And so here's just two examples. So if you go back 200 years ago, uh, 200 years, so let's just say it's 1819, and you'll find that Christian, uh, Christians in America, what was going on is that if Christians in the South would be sending preachers and evangelists to share the gospel to uh, slaves. And like, so what we see right there is that Christians were concerned for the soul of slaves, but they were not concerned about the plight for the injustice that slaves were living through. And so, in other words, the, uh, here's American Christianity, and they're reaffirming slavery, uh, and they're saying that slavery is God's design, and that's an incredible lie. A second example is just actually uh, 75 years ago. And when Japanese internment camps were created in, in world, world War II, what was going on in World War II is that if you were a Japanese-American, uh, you were viewed with suspicion. And so the government forcibly relocated families to, from the west coast of America to, and, and relocated Japanese-American families to, to other states, including Arkansas. And, so, and some Arkansas Christians rejoiced at this opportunity, that the nations were coming to their backyard and... But what, they, what these Christians were doing is that they would send evangelists into the, the internment camps. They would have campaigns. They would have rallies. But they were concerned about uh, their, their souls. But there was no effort made to improve or to appeal for their release from these camps. And like those are just two examples how we see uh, the American church has baggage of injustice. In fact, when I worked at a homeless shelter on the north side of Pittsburgh a few, uh, just over a decade ago, I learned an invaluable lesson about this. And I learned several invaluable lessons. But one lesson was, is this, is that people will never know how much you care. People will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so the reality is, to, to put this into gospel language, people do not care that you know the gospel until they know that really God cares about them. 
And, and, and that is really known, that is perceived, that is seen through the lifestyle of God's family. And if we will read Jesus' words in Matthew 23, what we find in Matthew 23 is that Jesus' words should really cut to the heart. Because Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23, is that like, you know what? Like, woe to you Pharisees. You, you go to your spice rack, you give a tithe of spice, of cumin, of dill. You, you, get, you tithe your spice rack, for crying out loud, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, faithfulness and justice. And the reality is this should really cut to our hearts because what we see right there from Matthew 23 is that a lack of justice is a sign that we do not have a right relationship with God. I'll just say that again. That a lack of justice is a sign that we do not have a right relationship with God. That all our prayers and all our religiosity are rooted in our own pride and they're very self-centered. And that's actually the, coming out of the passage that Pastor Darren looked at last week and from Matthew 6. And so here, here's just another uh, lesson I learned from when I was working on, on the, the, at the, the homeless mission, homeless shelter in Pittsburgh years ago. What I, what I learned is that there's also this understanding that if you are pursuing justice, then you are, quote, a liberal, unquote. That is the perception that if you are pursuing justice, that you are a liberal. And if you are a, if you're not pursuing justice, then you are pursuing, then you're a conservative. And that was just a, a, a rampant mischaracter, mischaracterization of really, of even what scripture teaches. As we have just even heard from Isaiah 11, Isaiah 1, over and over again, there's this command for God's people to pursue justice, to do justice. And so as we lean into this today, I want us to first think, I want us to think a few, through a few questions. Because the reality, here's the big picture uh, of today. The reality is that God's justice should make us just. God's justice should make us just. That's the big picture. And so how, what does that look like? And so a few questions to really help us think through this is, the very, the very first question is, what is justice? What is justice? This is a question we have to start with because in our culture, we can't even agree on what justice is. And if you look all throughout the, the, the Bible, like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, you'll see references to justice all over the place. Like Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, and bring justice to the fatherless. And so God's people are meant to be just. We are commanded to correct oppression. We are commanded to do these things. And just even a few weeks ago, like Micah 6, 8, we read that what does the Lord require of you? Yes, to walk humbly with God and to act mercy and to do justice. Like the prophets throughout the Old Testament command God's people to do justice. So this is why we have to consider what is justice? What is God commanding us to do here? And where we need to begin with this, where we need to begin our answer to this is in God himself. Because justice is rooted in God's righteousness. Justice is rooted in God's righteousness. 
Like, as we read the scriptures, that should surprise us because justice and righteousness are two very different words. They have two very different meanings. However, when you look at scripture, they are actually very similar to one another. Consider, for example, Amos 5.24, which links these two together. But let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Amos right there is pointing out that justice and righteousness, he's almost using them identically, synonymously. And in fact, uh, many times the Hebrew words for justice and or righteousness are actually translated, uh, the, the same, they're using the same word. The, the translators use justice and righteousness to describe the same, the same thing. And so what we find here is that as they're used the same way, the reality is they flow out of God's character. And this is where we're beginning as we answer this question, what is justice? And here's why. As we think about God's righteousness, God's righteousness is God's moral perfection. It's God's moral purity. It's God's moral goodness. When we say God is righteous, we are saying God is good. And in fact, when God created this world, when we look all the way back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see God's goodness on display, that God's character is actually displayed as an action. He is making this world, and he says, this world is good, and creation is also good as well. And so the reality, as we live in this world today, we can look all around the world, and see all the racial disparity and the economical disparity, all the pride and, and sexual brokenness. We can go on and on and on here, all the wars and so forth. But we look at the world and we see that this world is a broken place. That, in fact, there's evil in the world. That our natural inclination is to sin and to mess things up. So the reality is, here is a biblical definition of justice. That biblically speaking, justice is restoring the world according to God's design. Justice is restoring the world to God's design. And it's rooted in the fact that God is good and God created this world to be good. God created this, God is righteous and he created this world to be righteous. And so justice is restoring the world to, uh, to that original goodness, to that original righteousness. But as we see from Jesus, that righteousness is not just God's moral purity. It's not just his moral goodness. It's not just his moral perfection. In fact, Jesus hints at this when he says that we, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And let me just pause there for a moment because if you've grown up in the church, I suspect that when you hear the word righteousness, you are hearing it. And connected to Jesus' work on the cross. When you hear the word righteousness, you're thinking that Jesus is the one that makes you right with God. And you're absolutely right. That's really the major point of Romans. But that's not the full meaning of God's righteousness. In fact, that's just an incomplete. That's just a, a partial. That's an abridged definition or, or way to look at God's righteousness. When Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for example, he is telling us to hunger for the kingly justice 
He's telling us to hunger for the kingly justice that God promises us. He's telling us to hunger and thirst for justice, to hunger and thirst for freedom for the oppressed, for the broken, and for all things to be made new. Because what God is doing, because God is righteous, God is righteously making all things right. That's what it means for God to be righteous. Because when we think about God's righteousness, it's both a characteristic of who he is. It's an attribute of who he is. But it is also something that he acts out and he demonstrates and he manifests for us. The, the simple point is as we think about what is justice, that the reality is that God is just because God is also righteous. God is just because God is righteous. And God wants to make all things right, all things new in our world today. And so th that's coming to our next point. Because when we experience God's justice, when we experience God's righteousness, then our lives are going to be changed. And this brings us to Titus. Because Ty what Paul's point is in Titus 3 is this, and this is our second thing to consider today, is that God's justice changes your life. God's justice changes your life. So how is that the case? And so, but Paul highlights the fact that God's justice changes our life for us. As he begins in verse 4, he's telling us, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he's telling us something about how Jesus changes our lives right there. We didn't read verse 3, but verse 3 says this, but for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The picture that Paul gives right there in verse 3 is that our world is dark. That we, not only is our world dark, but we ourselves are dark. We ourselves are sinners and we contribute. We are in fact complicit to the brokenness in our world. And so then Paul goes to verse 4. He's like, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Father appeared to us. He, like, so right there, there's this radical change in our lives. And it's because of God's love in our lives. It's because of God's grace in our lives. And so when Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Paul is, zooms in on something here. He uses uh, so, very colorful language that even we ourselves admit that, to describe the love and the goodness and the grace of God to us. For example, what, the word loving kindness, so that word right there is where we get the word philanthropist. That's incredible that God is being called a philanthropist here. It's, so God is a philanthropist. And in fact, we are the ones who receive God's philanthropy. We are the ones who benefit from God. We are his, the beneficiaries of his love and grace and kindness to us. God in, goes on because God shows us because of his goodness, because of his loving kindness, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to appear to us. And, and what does Jesus do for us? He saves us. He, and that's verse 5. He saved us. But the reason why Jesus saves us is because of God's goodness to us, because of his love for us, because of his kindness to us. Not because of all our righteous works, which is, this is incredible here. Because what Paul is saying is that, like, all your good works, all your pursuits of justice, all your uh, affections for the Father, none of those things save you. None of your religiosity saves you. 
The only thing that saves you is the grace and loving kindness of God himself. We are saved, we are rescued because of God's mercy shown towards us. And so when we experience this this loving kindness of God, we're going to be transformed. Our hearts are going to be changed. And you'll be able to see that transformation in you yourself. You'll see the change in our actions. And so what we see coming, looking at this verse, jumping all the way down to verse 8, that God expects us to commit ourselves and to dedicate ourselves to good works. In other words, that if you have experienced the grace of God, then you are going to prove that. You're going to demonstrate that through your good works. If, you're, if you have experienced the grace of God, then you will prove that through the, your, the actions in your life. But why? Why does grace transform us? Why does God's goodness and loving kindness change us this way? Well, the reality is, is that for us to even receive God's grace, God's justice had to be demonstrated for us. God's righteousness had to be seen for us. And where we see God's justice and righteousness both clearly displayed for us is none other than the cross. Where we see God's righteousness and justice displayed for us, it's through the cross. It's through Jesus' work on Calvary. So let me explain that right there. And so Paul says right here in this text, that in verse 7, that we are justified by his grace. That word justified takes place within a, a, a legal sense, within a courtroom. It's the idea that uh, you're there. You're in the defense corner. You're there and you're, uh, you're being tried and, and all the evidence has been brought before you. And the reality is you're guilty. But what does the judge do? The judge picks up his gavel and says, I pronounce you not guilty. Bam. The, the reality, that word justification means that you have been pardoned, that you have been acquitted of all your sin, of all your, your wrongdoing, of all your guilt. That, in fact, you are not guilty. And so and you are innocent of all the things that you have been accused of, even though you have done those things. That's incredible. That in the eyes of God, you are innocent, you are righteousness. And the reason why you're declared innocent, the reason why you are justified is because Jesus died upon the cross for your sins. Because Jesus' death is, is, means that, like, I'll put it this way. I want, and this, I'm being very provocative here. But Jesus' death means that you've never sinned. That's what Jesus' death means before the sight of God. It means that you have never sinned. But is that the truth? I know in my life, I sin all the time. I sin in thought. I sin in word. I sin in deed. We sin. But how is it possible that God can look at me, that God can look at you and say, not guilty? How is that possible? That is the most unjust pronunciation in the world because I'm a sinner. I contribute. I am complicit to the evil and the brokenness in this world. How is it possible for me to be declared not guilty? How is it possible for me to be declared righteous? The reality is that on the cross, God was actually working in a very just way. 
The Apostle John tells us this, and, and he helps us understand. He brings clarity here in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is only used twice in the entire Bible. But it's, it's used by John in 1 John twice, um, 2.2 and 4.10. And that word propitiation means to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy God's wrath, to pay the price for our sins. The reality is for us to be justified, for us to be declared not guilty, our salvation, our rescue has a cost. And Jesus is the one who paid it all. Jesus is the one who paid it all. Jesus died for you, not because of any any good things that we have done, not because of any righteousness that you have done, not because of any religiosity whatsoever. Jesus died for you upon the cross. Why? Because the goodness and the loving kindness of God has appeared to you. And And so the reality is that when we experience this, our lives are going to be changed. Here's an example. Here's an example. Uh, this, um, the story I'm about to share with you only happens like three weeks ago. So in 2004, though, uh, it, this is where it begins. In 2004, a 16-year-old Sintonia uh, Brown uh, killed a 40-year-old man. And her crime involves prostitution, robbery, drugs, and murder of a sleeping man. And she was found guilty and sent to jail with a life sentence without parole. And that's a very harsh sentence when you consider so many things. That's, for example, one is that she is a minor at the time of her crime. And over the years, over the next 15 years, over and over again, her legal team would file appeal after appeal after appeal. And she was, her original sentence was always reaffirmed. In fact, and just as most recently as December of 2018, the Tennessee Supreme Court upheld the original ruling. But on January 7th, the governor commuted her sentence, which means that she is being released from prison in a few months or a few weeks, just later this year. And so in her formal statement, as a letter of thank you to the governor, she says this. This is what she says. This is an act of mercy that you're showing me. And I'll do everything I can do to justify your faith in me. I just want to point this out. There's, there's no, this is, a, this is an act of mercy. She is acknowledging uh, her, her crime. But she is also pointing out that this is an act of mercy. This is a, there's goodness going on here. There's loving kindness going on here. And, but, and she goes on that to say, I will, will do everything I can do to justify your faith in me. And that's a great story. It really is. As we read that, like, as I've read this, I've been moved to, to tears. And in many ways, it's a picture of our lives. We are criminals. We are the ones who are guilty before God. We are the ones who have broken God's law. And that there is no finer point of God's law that we can appeal to. There is no judicial prejudice or profiling that we can a- a- appeal to and say, hey, I- I'm being discriminated against. There's no nuance. Our sin demands punishment. But the reality is Jesus is the one who paid it. We weren't sent to jail. Jesus was for us. We weren't shamed and outcast, but Jesus was shamed and outcast for us. But here's what makes God's love truly amazing. 
there's even nothing that we can do to justify God's love for us. There's nothing you can do to justify God's love for you. Nothing. And, but what we see in these words that Ms. Brown offers is that they are words of, gra- of gratitude. And let's, let's be very clear. That is the intention of grace. That is the intention of goodness. That is the intention of God's loving kindness to us. That when we received undeserved love and favor, the only response, that the, the proper response is one of thankfulness. Because the reality is there's nothing that we have done to deserve that. We can, res- we can only respond to God with thankfulness in our hearts. And so as Jesus says, to, as, as, we, as in fact, let me put this, as God says, you are justified. The reality is that we are now not guilty. And this is what one, um, one pastor, Eric Mason, wrote in his book. But he writes this about justification, that justification is a huge greenhouse of truth that extends beyond being declared righteous. Justification is also a practice. Christ's righteousness is imputed, it's given to us by faith, and it leads to us being made right with God as well as our, as well as our making things right on earth. As we know that Jesus will return and bring to completion the work that God has been doing through his people. And so, friends, if you have experienced the gospel, if you have experienced the love and the kindness and goodness of God, your life is going to be changed. As God says, you are not guilty, we ourselves know we are actually incredibly guilty. We know that we are guilty. And we are going to be working for justice in this world. And so let's think about a few points of application here. Um, As we are changed by God's grace, but what does it mean for us as Christians to pursue justice? What does it mean for us as Christians to pursue justice, to do what Eric Mason says, to do justification? Uh, And I want to begin to answer this with another quote. This is from Harvey Kahn. He was a Presbyterian missionary to Korea. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Glenside, and he passed away 20 years ago. But he writes this in his book, Evangelism, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace. This is what he says, that one cannot be a missionary church and continue to insist that the world must come to church on the church's terms. The church was sent by Jesus to go. We must go. The church cannot do that when the church's concerns are directed outside itself toward the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. Actually, the church can only do that when its concerns are directed outside itself toward the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. The church must recapture its identity as the only organization that exists for the sake of its non-members. And that last line there, just to simplify it, the church is the only organization that exists for the, the sake of its non-members. As we look at Jesus' life, we're told that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we look at Jesus' life, we see him um, eating meals with sinners and tax collectors, with those who are poor and marginalized. We see Jesus, even in the Last Supper, going to his disciples and washing his disciples' feet. He is serving over and over again. As we look at Jesus' life, we'll see how grace and justice and righteousness and service all play out in practice. And the reason 
the reason why Jesus did all this is because he himself is righteous. He himself is good. He himself is working to restore the world to God's original design for this world. And the reality is that if we truly understand God's grace, if we truly grasp God's love for us and what the cost that it really demanded, if we truly understand this, our attitudes towards the poor, towards the homeless, towards the, the marginalized, towards the sojourner, they will all, our attitudes will, will demonstrate that we know God. And so we are called, as Paul very clearly says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. This is actually the second time he, he says this. The other time's in Titus 2. But I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're called to devote ourselves to good works. And this is not just sharing things on social media. This is not just because where we share, when we go on social media, we're try, we, yes, we're using a platform to get a message out, but we're doing it in part for likes and clicks and follows. This is actually a call that transcends social media, but it actually, this is a call that defines our life. It's meant to. So let's just consider some rhetorical questions to reflect and think on. And we, we just even using language of Jesus, do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Do we befriend the poor and the marginalized? Do we love the needy? Do we bring justice to the fatherless? Do we plead the widow's cause? Do we do these things? And the, the reality is we are called to do these things. That's what it means for us to love our neighbor. But the truth is, none of our religiosity, none of our righteous works, none of our good works, none of those things are the basis for our relationship with God. The only basis of our relationship with God is the fact that Jesus has paid it all. The only basis for our life with God is the fact that Jesus is the one himself. And him alone, it's only Jesus alone who has made us right with God. If we know that then we'll be able to show others the, our lives and say, hey, look at our life we know, and as a sign that we know the one true living God who loves this world and who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, to save and rescue the world. Let's pray.